to the Small Batch Podcast, Episode 5. We have another action-packed episode today. We were lucky enough to interview David Cole, co-founder of Epic Brewing. This is a pretty monumental interview because this is the first brewery that we talked to on the West Coast, and uh, us being on the East Coast, I tend to lean toward uh, concentrating on the ones that I'm familiar with, but we reached out to Dave and he was gracious enough to grant us an awesome interview and you'll hear more of that later on in the episode. But first, let's get to update on what's been going on with me and other answer a few questions from Dan Christofferson's Ask a CPA. With the holidays happening now, it's it's been hard for me to travel. Uh, with a new baby in the house, it's been hard for me to travel, so I've kept it pretty close to home and have uh, stayed busy uh, in in my own firm, keeping keeping things rocking and rolling. But we're we're stoked about a 2014 coming on. We're we're looking at some pretty awesome growth there, and been doing some strategic planning within the firm and also with some of the brewery clients, really laying down 12 month strategic plan. You know, it's up for debate uh, what a strategic plan looks like. Some people suggest three to five years. Some people say five year. But honestly, my opinion is a one year is even too long. But it's more realistic than a five year. And the reason for all this is because once you set that strategic plan in place and you set some goals in place, within a day, within a week, within two weeks, the focus may change due to unforeseen events or due to unforeseen windfalls, it's just, it's hard. So uh, I take an approach that uh, a year is the most that that I will plan out and uh, really hammer out how we're gonna get to the next level. So I had a lot of fun doing it with two breweries this past month and we have lined up some, some awesome goals. I head to San Diego in early January and looking to visit some breweries out there while I attend a executive committee meeting that I'm on. I'm gonna be reaching out to some of those pretty soon and seeing if we can have a sit down. But I wanna jump straight into ask a, a CPA questions today. I said, you know, we were gonna address two a month. This will kind of give you an idea of some of the stuff that, that I work on and some of the stuff that I consult on. So the first question that I wanna to address today has to do with deposits on growlers sold out of the tap room or really anything that requires a deposit out of the tap room. It could be a growler, it could be a cake shell, it could be a tap handle. But the question that came in said, when you charge a deposit and if that item never returns, when do you count it as revenue? Because at the time of the deposit, that that money really isn't yours. It's sitting in a liability account waiting for the person to return that money and, and get back to them. This specific question was around growlers and you know my answer my candid answer to that was i'm not really sure why why breweries some breweries charge a deposit on growlers i think a growler is a living breathing advertising tool that really is the gift that keeps on giving get them branded get them logoed and uh, sell them uh, sell them at cost you don't need to really make a profit on them if your brand is strong enough uh, you could make a, a profit on it but um, beer sales out of your tap room are, are high profit enough giving someone something with your brand on it is even better. If you must charge a deposit and you want to get the glass back, um, 
then you need to set something up in your POS system to capture the uh, growler uh, deposit amount. So you'll have the beer sale and then you'll have the deposit amount. When they return it, you have another item called deposit uh, growler or deposit return or growler return. And at that point, the same account is, is really hit and it detracts from the balance in that account. Where deposits get tricky, and this is a state-to-state -state issue, is sales tax. Most states charge sales tax on deposits. So uh, making sure you account for the sales tax through set up properly through your POS system to account for the sales tax is super important because the last agency you want to deal with is the your local Department of Revenue, your state Department of Revenue. They really are, they've become less aggressive, but I've seen states do some, some pretty wacky things. And it's just a matter of them needing the revenue. Once again, they're not out to get you. They're not out to shut you down. They're out to enforce the rules and, and get revenue um, in a time when they're, they're really hurting. So I hope, I hope that answers the question on, on deposits. I'm against them, but if you must charge a deposit, it's a matter of tracking it properly with items in your, in your POS. And the last part of the question was, when can you deem that item not coming back and convert the the deposit to revenue? That's a management issue. You may post a sign that says uh, items not returned in 90 days will be uh, for, a deposit will be forfeited. Uh, there's no rule that says X number of days or X amount of time to convert a deposit to to revenue. It's really an accounting cleanup thing and it's an internal management decision. Second question, and this 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 falls in line with my love for uh, technology and really back office operation efficiencies, which is really excites me the most out of this whole, all the work that I do. It says, what is the most optimum means of maintaining both uh, pub, restaurant sales and beer sales and production? It says, so far the software available to breweries seems excessive for a seven barrel brew pub. Rarely are the POSs in the production um, combined so we're looking at a number of different suites and that person's exactly right POS point of sales for your tap room for your brew pub are a completely different set of softwares than your production production houses and the two don't link the two won't link the two can't link POS is an industry of its own manufacturing software is an industry of their own the person that comes up with uh, a single system to track all will um, will do very well, but I don't see it on the horizon with all of my technology research and studies. So my suggestion is to put together a best of breed depending on your size. There are number of manufacturing softwares out there that cater really to startups all the way to 100,000 barrels a year plus. These systems are meant to track your raw materials coming in, your planning, your forecasting, your cost per barrel. They're meant to track your packaging schedules, your packaging types, on-the-fly changes. And what that means is, is you have a recipe for a beer, you want to change it up for a seasonal or you want to change it up to test something. You should be able to do this on the fly in your in your software. All the way to distribution, keg tracking. Some allow your distributors to even link in and send you sales orders. These are all, you know, really part of the, the manufacturing and distribution process. Now that's on the, the manufacturing side. On the 
the, the point of sale side, you have a plethora of options. You have, and I, and I write about, I have a long blog post on my website about uh, Taproom POS. And the thing to think about here is, is how complicated do you want it? And uh, also you gotta think about cash controls or how simple do you want it? A lot of production houses with tap rooms are using the tablet, iPad, POS systems. There's nothing wrong with that. There are some very viable options out there that will connect with a, a cash register drawer, that will connect with a card reader, that will sync, sync everything up on the tap room side to make it clean. If you're a brew pub, uh, your options are, are more limited in the tablet arena. Then you get into some of the more household names such as Micros, Aloha, JCR, uh, and these systems are expensive, but you get what you pay for in this in this industry. With these more expensive systems, you can set up all sorts of features to send tickets to various departments, fire, you know, different orders. So it really depends. I advise brew pubs. You really got to throw down for the the more expensive systems. Whereas your startup tap room can function on a tablet software when you're selling pints, you're selling retail to go, and you're selling merchandise. It really can be set up and managed through that. So we've described two of the three, the three parts. We've described the manufacturing, we've described the POS, and then it all has to trickle down into an accounting system to generate your, your financials. That, this is also uh, up for debate. I, I have a system and process in place that can utilize QuickBooks to handle all of this. Some people would say QuickBooks can't do it. Some of the software competitors believe you outgrow QuickBooks. I can pretty much guarantee you that QuickBooks can handle a brewery, production house, tap room. I, I don't even want to put a barrel amount on it. You know, I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm confident that if the software is set up right and the people are trained properly or your accountant understands the retail and the manufacturing end of it, QuickBooks can can handle it and, and the reason being is is uh, once you have the right POS in place and set up properly the right manufacturing system set up in place uh, in place and set up properly QuickBooks is just generating reports you're just feeding it information to generate reports and it'll run your reports till till kingdom comes so it's really important to understand the the trifecta of software it's your your POS for your tap room or brew pub it's your manufacturing for the production side and then lastly is your accounting general ledger package, which is going to spit out the report and also capture any HR payroll. I, I, hope, that, uh, I hope that helps. Uh, those are the two questions I'm going to address today. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, sharing with you all this interview that we did with uh, Dave Cole. He had a lot of good stuff to share, especially for the, the new breweries that are coming online. I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, I'll talk to you soon. Hey, I want to welcome Dave Cole, co-founder of Epic Brewing Company out of Salt Lake City and now Denver, Colorado. Welcome, Dave. Hey, thanks for having me, Chris. No problem. I, I, I get so excited when I get to interview brewers. Uh, you are the first brewer we're talking to on the West Coast. We, we've spoken to Joey Redner out of Cigar City the D.C. Brow guys up in, in the Northeast, and now you're the West Coast. going to give us some West Coast flavor. Um, I had a chance to watch your Brewbound uh, video, your Brewbound interview, and um, <clears throat> give our listeners a little bit of your background and uh, talk about the shrimp. <laughs> the shrimp, yeah. <laughs> so, <clears throat> well, I, I, 
I grew up in California, Southern California, and then got engaged in the, this crazy business called the brine shrimp business, and it's basically aquaculture feeds for um, larval stages of both fish and shrimp that are farmed literally around the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then start moved what that that took me from California in '92 to to Utah, Salt Lake City, Utah. Primarily, that's you know the the Great Salt Lakes there, and that's where our harvest operations for the brine shrimp eggs are. And uh, eventually sold that business in the early 2000s, I think 2001, if I recall correctly. And about worked for that company for about six years after that was sold, and decided to uh, get back to Peter and my passion, uh, craft beer. You know, growing up in and uh, going to college in San Diego and Living in the Bay Area, we fell in love with craft beer in the '80s and '90s. So, yeah, that's that's the synopsis. <laughs> awesome, and you you also let me know on the back end uh, that this the shrimp business ended up you you got a trip to uh, you had took a trip to Iran. What year was that? And tell me how that was. Yeah, it was. Uh, I think it was 1999, and we took the trip because the Great Salt Lake at that time wasn't producing much uh, brine shrimp eggs, and. Uh, in 99, a German uh, partner that we did business with in, in Germany said, hey, let's go check out Lake Uremia in Iran. Um, so I went, <laughs> and it was uh, it was crazy, 99 in Iran. It was not easy to get there, and it was a lot of fun to, to go and have that uh, experience. Yeah. You're one of few that have, that have visited or and probably will visit for a while, but um, all right. So let's talk about let's talk about the real reason for this call, and let's talk about beer. Um, give uh, tell me why brewing. Uh, why did y'all? Uh, you said you love you love craft brewing. Um, it was a, a Southern California staple, but give us a little more background on how you you went with beer. Well, it, it kind of started. I guess it started in San Diego, and when we my business partner and I both ended up moving up to corporate headquarters in San Francisco. And um, started drinking a lot of craft beer, cool little breweries on the East Bay. And, of course, we went over to the city and Anchor Steam back when they were right in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And we just fell in love with it. And when our business was – the business we were working for was getting sold, we almost started that uh, a craft brewery in California. But we decided to do the brine trip thing because we didn't know anything about actually running that kind of business. And then when a lot changed in 2008 in Utah – it made it possible to sell full-strength beer direct to the public and no longer having to go through the state system. Mm-hmm. So that was what drove us to say, hey, you know, we sold our previous business. We can kind of do this cool little niche business in Utah and, you know, see what happens and, and get back to giving people in Utah full-strength craft beer. Because craft beer, when I moved here in 1992, was all 3-2 and sold in grocery and lick, uh, grocery stores so i don't know we we felt there was something was missing sorely missing in utah so mm-hmm. i guess we were there to save beer in utah yeah <laughs> that's great now tell tell me about yours and your partners uh, your relationship <clears throat> the kind of the roles of, of who do what because on our last call we we really focused on brandon and jeff of, of the dc brow guys and how they really complement each other and Part of this podcast is to get out to aspiring brewers and breweries 
um, and share success stories, you know, sh share uh, what success looks like when there's a partnership. Because I understand there's there's complications that pop up that ca can pop up when when you got a, a you know two two bright minds in one one room. So kind of tell me a little bit about um, how that works. Yeah, I think Peter and I are really fortunate. Um, we worked together for a number of years in in our previous companies in San Diego and, and San Francisco, the companies we worked for. And, you know, I think it was maybe six years we worked together, six or seven years. And then we made this decision to go into business together, the first business, Salt Creek Rancher. So I think that was pretty cool and interesting for us to have that experience where we both worked for somebody else together and then decide to do this business. And at one point, I think this kind of sums up the whole kind of business relationship that was that we developed as you know, Peter and I were putting everything we had in our, our entire life savings, and we were asking friends and families to invest with us in Salt Creek. And at a certain point, um, I guess Peter's dad asked him, you know, really, you're going to do this with a partner? It's difficult. And I think that's what you're alluding to, right? Exactly. So, and his dad told him this story. is like, well, you know, get up. You know, you really believe that Dave can do this and is committed like you are. And his dad said, well, get up. When, I, when you were little, I almost wanted to do this little story to you. I want you to get on top of the refrigerator and jump off, and I promise to catch you. And his dad said that, you know, I wouldn't have caught you. Probably just to teach you that, you know, you got to watch out for yourself. And all sure. I did, Peter told me that story. I'm like, dude, either, I'm going to catch you every damn time. I don't care what you've done wrong or what I've done wrong. I'm going to just be there to catch you. Right. And, and he said the same thing back to me. So that kind of laid it out and it gave us the opportunity to say, hey, we're committed to each other. And, you know, he believes in what I do. And I do like more marketing, sales and new product development. I've done that in both businesses. And then he's more like a finance guy and um, operations. He's really he's a smart guy. He has an MBA, and then I'm kind of more like street smart and markets. Um, we both have degrees in biology, so we have a similar background. So I think it really it really works. And people are like, "Man, you guys are like a married couple," which is kind of scary. But um, so that really works well. But yeah. the two the two of us, if the other component is Kevin is a he earned an equity share and Kevin Crompton's our, our brewmaster. Uh -huh. The other component is Peter and I were also smart enough to know that we love beer and we could homebrew pretty decent homebrew, but we weren't commercial brewers. <laughs> you know, we had no idea. So we offered this guy this opportunity. Well, we offered it to several people, but he's the one we landed on, and um, he brings to the team that creative force of beer and he knows how to commercial brew so where we lack knowledge we hired and got a, another great partner who's the same way he knows what his role is and and we all try to where we overlap we just communicate yeah it's honestly it sounds like a recipe for success uh marrying strengths and really knowing knowing the boundaries of those strengths uh and uh, letting the other trusting trusting the other partner or individual to do do their best job that's that's great um, you know, does craft beer differ from West Coast to East Coast? I, I don't know. Um, <clears throat> I'm really familiar with what we have in Florida. I'm familiar with what we have uh, up the East Coast. I think the West Coast is a little more mature maybe than the East Coast. Tell me your take on West versus East and breweries and, and if there is any difference. I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I think there are at, at like the street level and maybe – 
packages that consumers want, um, and maybe just underlying trends and styles at the consumer level. But I think what's kind of cool about American craft beer right now is is breweries that decide to do cool ass shit and execute well. They're the rock stars. I mean, Cigar City, come on, that's a great brewery. And if you tell people that no beer, they're gonna know Cigar City, and they'll know a couple in the West Coast that are are similar or you know make equally interesting beers just in a different location. Sure, that, that's my take. Right. I think out west we have you know more people are maybe accepting cans sooner in terms of package, um, and of course West Coast I think tends to use a little bit more of the the reduced isomerized hops in their beers. So mm-hmm. I think those are interesting differentiations. Gotcha. Uh, let's talk about any like legislative rants on your radar, and I know you guys are in two states, you so you really have two to, to deal with since you have uh, physical plants in, in two states. But, um, you know, in Florida, we're battling some growler laws. In various states, they're trying to get tap rooms open. Tell us what legislative rant or rave going on in your on your radar is. Well, I, a big one is Utah. I mean, Utah is the worst state in the, in the union for... Uh, any alcohol beverage. I mean, state controlled. It, it's a constant battle. They change. They change these nuances to the law every year, and it's a prohibitionist state. So, I could rant for hours on that. But it's it's kind of cool to be in the state of Colorado, where we have a very strong craft brewers guild there, mm-hmm. and of course, there's issues there too, and and the guild's really active, um, and. They know how to professionally go after change. I, anybody that's, I think they should join their state guild. If you're starting up, get in a guild, and that's when you can have one common voice, speak to lawmakers, get on the same page. You don't have to agree about every detail, but find the big items that you can agree on and push for change. And we try to do that in Utah. It's, it's difficult, but in Colorado, there's this great body that, that gets that done through John Carlson and the guild. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Colorado's a bit of a different breed. That's why... I'm interested in in, um, in your Utah uh, position because I, I I didn't know much about it, but I only imagined that it would be a, a difficult uh, state to deal with. And and um, I think each state has their fair share of prohibition laws. They're they're battling others uh, more strict than than some. But um, cool. Um, what's the next big conference you will be attending? Uh, so any listeners can come up. Say, hey, Lewis, I heard you on the podcast and want to ask you a question or hang out or grab a beer with you. Yeah, I will be in uh, in Denver for the CBC in April. Yep. And uh, we'll also, I think we're going to we're gonna try to put together another Firkin event on the Tuesday night of that week. I forget the date. Um, so love to meet people at the brewery or at the conference and chat. I mean, that's what's fun about craft beer. Yep. Now tell me about the Colorado facility. Is it is it up and running? Is it is it open? Yeah, so we've been brewing beers there since July. Okay. And uh, then we finished the tap room build out in late September. Okay. And the tap rooms open it's about fifteen hundred square feet, twenty five of our beers on tap at any time. Um, pretty cool space. It's just a few blocks from it's probably about six or eight blocks from Coors Field, so pretty much downtown. 
Sweet. Very good. All right. Um, last question that I have, and, and we can kind of go in any direction after this if you want, but um, d what's your take on delicious versus big? Um, my my palate still has not uh, fully accepted uh, the Imperial IPAs. Um, so I'm always on the hunt for a delicious beer. Um, kind of talk to me about when you guys are strategizing on your current flagships or new beers, you know, what's, what do y'all look for? And, and do you think, we'll talk about delicious versus big. Yeah, delicious versus big. Um, I guess I'd say all things in moderation except for deliciousness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm with you on, on the big beers. I, we have that wonderful Big Bad Baptist, but if I drink like, you know, a bomber or half a bomber of that beer, I'm wide awake and pretty lit. So good beer to share and have small quantities. It's really, it's very delicious. Um, so I, I think you can have both. Uh, but I, I like, I like to think that we, um, really focus on delicious. Kevin does great things with aroma, the way that we dry hop and the way that we use fruit and beer. It's not super sweet. And he actually, we make a lot of big beers, but some of them like the brainless on peaches and cherries, they are pretty subtle. When you get people to try them, it's not overly sweet. The alcohol is usually fairly well hidden and they're shocked and amazed that it's near 11%. So I, I, I think what's hard is to find that balance between delicious and big, but I'm with you. I, I drink a lot more quantity of beer that has a really nice flavor and tends to be around six to seven and sometimes even four and a half percent. Yeah. So you're not, you're not a big fan of the, I, the Imperial IPAs yet, huh, Chris? No, I, I really, I can't, I can't stomach them. I, you know, I will, uh, I, um, I try to pair it with food to get them down but that's not the first beer I'm going to go to. No, no. I, and I, I will always taste it because I want to taste different IPAs. I want to taste the the trail offs and see you know how they end. Um, but no, I'm not gonna. I can't do a pint of, of an Imperial IPA. But um, last 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 thing before we go, a any um, words of advice for new breweries and planning? I, I think the word is 1,200 breweries are supposed to come online next year. Um, you know, what do you, what do you, what kind of advice could, would you, would you give, uh, if you could just give one, one tip plan, plan and over plan and plan until everybody who's engaged in the planning process hates each other and then plan some more <laughs> and then execute. I mean, really it, it's way cheaper to make mistakes on paper and second guess everything you're going to do from beer to financial, to investors, to partners, to location, overthink everything. You don't have to be in a hurry. Yep, I agree with that totally. Sweet. All right, Dave. Well, we can we can wrap this wrap this up. I, I really appreciate you joining us on the Small Batch Podcast today, and uh, look forward to definitely meeting you in uh, April at the CBC. Yeah, it's going to be great. Look forward to seeing you, and thanks for having me on, Chris. Anytime. Talk to you later. Cheers.